decided to pair the Pimm's Cup with Smetna is because it's not too well known in the States. And that's kind of how Smetna is. And he kind of sucked. Uh, Smetna tried to write one opera per year and people did not like them. Cheers! Cheers! Welcome to Pour Me a Mozart. Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> he's <sounded> constipated. <laughs> We should do that over. No. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Okay. You're having a special day. I really am. Uh, welcome to... <laughs> welcome to Pour Me a Mozart. My name is Asia, and I'm here with Patty, and we are drinking too. <laughs> do you want to start over? No, I'm just, I'm thinking, like, this girl again? <laughs> It's because you're great. Oh, no, thanks. Except when I sound constipated cheering. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, We are drinking to Pim's Cup and Smetna's From My Life Quartet. Yeah. So, hi, Patty. Hello. I know. I just, that was a great entrance. Yes, yes, yes. um. Luckily, I've already made a first impression. (laughs) Or, I don't know. I mean, maybe you have new listeners that are listening to this the first time. That's true. This is the first thing you Messed it all up. (laughs) Just kidding. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I've probably messed it all up. No, never, never. <laughs> anyway, um, are you ready? We're just going to dive right in oh. for your two-minute personal... Hi- you thought you had more time. I did, but that's okay. okay. Um, when's, the, when's the stopwatch start? Oh. oh, I was going to do it on my phone, but potential spam is calling me. Oh, good. It gives me more time. Well, I'm ready now. Okay. <laughs> so I'm originally from San Diego, California, and I began on piano, actually, was my first instrument, and... Um, my sister also simultaneously was playing violin and around the age of eight or nine, I thought, you know, I want to pick up another instrument, but I don't want to be a violinist. I want to be a cellist. Because who Cause... would want to be a violinist? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was like, I don't want to be like my sister. Right. And so I asked my parents if I could play cello and they said, are you sure? You know, you have to make sure that you stick through it. And so I did. I think I said that maybe on one of the previous episodes, but that's that's honestly the story. It's like boiled down to that. Okay, and uh, so then I was in orchestra, and I happened to be um, accidentally placed as principal for a particular rehearsal uh, for Scheherazade, and there was this big cello solo. Or actually, no, it wasn't Scheherazade. It was a Capriccio Espanol, same composer, Rimsky-Korsakov. And that was kind of the light bulb moment because I just played it, and it was, I'm sorry, it was much better than the real principal cellist, and everyone in the orchestra knew that. And so that was like, okay, I guess this is like something I'm pretty good at. So fast forward through a lot of schooling, about 10 years of schooling, and then here I am as the cellist of the Artaria String Quartet, and that's how I basically met Asia. Is that how did I do? I you skipped have 40 a lot. seconds. Oh, I do. Oh, okay. So what I don't see want to say. <laughs> so I, I went to USC for my undergraduate, San Francisco Conservatory for a master's in music and an artistic certificate in chamber music, and then Rice University for a second master's. You're good. <laughs> oh, you're giving me this look. Okay. So, um, so basically, I traveled up the coast of California, then skedaddled over to Houston, Texas, and then up again north to Minnesota. Ta-da! <laughs> okay. You still had 15 seconds. Oh, my God. I just thought, I know, two minutes is actually kind of long. 
Um, I just thought it was funny that you started out really slow and then you're like, 40 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what that look was for. <laughs> I see. Well, I don't know. That's That was, that was like pressure that I didn't expect. I, I know. know. I'm starting to feel bad that I'm doing this to people. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, really... it's a good, like, let's, let's just get the bare, you know, minimum facts of this person and then let's continue drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think some people would prefer to drink before I make them do that. Ah, well, which I guess I, I was guess fortunate. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So you're here in Minnesota, part of a string quartet and during COVID, you added another project. I did. Thanks, like Asia. <laughs> I don't know. I think I've, I can't remember. Do you know what a drag mom is in the drag queens of... I know of it, but no, I haven't watched RuPaul, if that's what you're asking. Well, it's in the drag in drag queen worlds. Um, basically, there's what's called a drag mom, where maybe one drag queen... So like RuPaul is a drag mom to a bunch of other drag queens, and then they are all become drag moms to other new... Oh, it's like a pyramid scheme. Well, I would say it's a scheme. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a... It's a family, mm-hmm. right? There's a little tree going on of right. like, oh, so this person is, is that drag mom. So I would like to say that you are my podcast mom. I'm your pod mom. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So I started a podcast during COVID because I was literally sitting on my couch thinking, you know, I don't like thinking that we're unessential as musicians. I, I mean, I totally understand. I, I get the reason why we have to stay at home and all those things, but it also felt really invalidating that, and, and that, you know, I was just kind of rotting in my couch. And so I thought, you know what, I might as well do something that might help uh, propel the conversations about classical music, about classical musicians, maybe debunk some myths about what we do and make us more approachable. So I started, my podcast is called Haydn Behind the Music Stand. Haydn spelled like Joseph Haydn, H-A-Y-D-N. And um, Asia's been a guest. She's my second episode. So mm-hmm. tune in for her to talk about all of, excuse me, <laughs> all of her experiences on at the Miss America or how do I say this? In the Miss America organization. In the Miss America organization. Because, mm-hmm. yes, right. Uh, I get that wrong, too, on the podcast, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it's been it's been kind of a fun journey to interview a lot of my old friends that I hadn't really connected with in years and it's like as if you know things are as if we were still in the same city still hanging out as usual and um, it's I don't know I've had a lot of fun and also just discovering other people's hobbies are just really you know like I didn't know certain people had certain interests outside of music so it's a learning process for me too so but yeah yeah. it's um, to continue plugging all your stuff, oh, no. <laughs> uh, it's a great podcast to listen to. Um, your friends all sound like people I would love to meet someday. <laughs> and this will come out, I think, right after your hot sauce episode, which I also <sighs> love hot sauce. So yes. I haven't listened to it yet because it's not released. But the episode this week was about fountain pens. And that was honestly kind of the first one that I was like, mm, that sounds boring. But Okay. It was not, and now I want a fountain pen. <laughs> okay, cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. You know, one wouldn't think there's so much to think about with fountain pens. Right. Yeah, that's why I'm, that, th- this is the premise, basically, is that there's certain things that you're like, wait, what? And then you're like, oh, that actually is cool. Like classical music. Yes, exactly. So. And all of our experiences come together to make us the musician that we are. Totally. Which... Right. It's really cool. And that's where I also like to compare and contrast between, you know, what does motivate us as musicians and then what motivates us 
as musicians in whatever we are interested in. Mm-hmm. Did you just say that? Did I? I don't know. I don't know either. I hope I'm not repeating or <laughs> like ex- over explaining. But yeah, that's the yeah. So you can listen on Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever, basically wherever you can find a podcast, you could probably find mine too. Nice. So yeah, just like yeah. tuck it in with Asia's. Oh, I guess that could be a RuPaul thing. They tuck. Anyway, never mind. You could. Cut I it. need to watch this show. It's a good. Well, invite me and I'll come over and. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Shall we talk about what we're drinking? Sure. Yeah. Pim's cup. We're drinking a Pim's cup, which Patty and I were talking about doing the Spentna from my life quartet mm-hmm. and thinking what kind of Czech drinks are there? And like, there's a vodka called, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Chopin wasn't. He was Czech. Polish. <laughs> Crap. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always get those two mixed up because my heritage is Polish, but That's my right. last name is yep. Czech. But I remember having this conversation, but I was flipping through this book I've mentioned before, The Joy of Mixology by Gary Regan, and we came across the Pimm's Cup recipe, which I'll just read from this book. This drink isn't too well known in the States, but it's a marvelously refreshing summertime quaff that's not too high in alcohol. Actually, I forgot that it said that it's a refreshing summertime Mm -hmm. drink. Mm -hmm. But I definitely was thinking that after the first sip. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is really refreshing. I could probably edit that yeah, It's out. a nice one. It's kind <laughs> of, and I think because it has a lower alcohol content, you don't really feel like you're getting sloshed on the on patio or something yes. like that. Yeah. We all like to avoid getting sloshed. I should have said this on like every episode. I drink responsibly. <laughs> James Pym opened his first London restaurant in 1823, and by 1840, he had a chain of five establishments. Pym himself is said to have created this gin-based aperitif flavored with fruit liqueurs and herbs. It was traditionally served in tankards. So you drink a big old thing of it? I guess. Okay. Pym's cup became so successful that it was exported throughout the British Empire, and eventually five more bottlings were released, each with a different base. Pim's number two cup was made with scotch, number three with brandy, number four with rum, number five with rye, and number six with vodka. Today, only Pim's number one cup is still available. In the north of England, Pim's is usually served in a highball glass, topped off with club soda or ginger ale, and an abundance of fruit. And here we go. A wedge of apple, a slice of orange, a maraschino cherry, and maybe a small slice of lemon, if you can fit anything else on the glass, I think is why it says maybe. Right. On the Thames, however, that's how you say that, right? Thames? Drinkers look down <laughs> their noses at this fruit salad, preferring to take their pims in the more traditional fashion with just a sliver of cucumber rind. Another great way to garnish the drink is with a huge bunch of basil on top. Just a huge bunch a huge. of basil. You just basically eat some pesto on the top of it. Oh, that actually sounds good. <laughs> I love basil. Serve like a julep with straws cut short enough so that the drinker must bury his nose in the basil while sipping through the straw. I, I I'm not mean, cutting these straws. No, but also, like, why then have a straw if it's basically just putting your face in the basil? Yeah, excellent question. You could just say some plastic. You could... Save the earth that way. So the recipe in here is two ounces, Pim's number one cup, five to seven ounces of ginger ale, lemon lime soda, or club soda, one sliver of cucumber rind for garnish. But on the back of the bottle, it says one and a half ounces of Pim's, which I thought was interesting that they chose to use less and the book chose to use more. More. Mm -hmm. 
But anyway, we used more because... Because we be us. Because we be us. And we topped it. So you build, you fill a glass halfway with ice and then just pour the ingredients in. No shaking. It's a very easy drink to make. Yep. And I thought it would be fun to taste the pims and see see what kind of flavors we get. So Patty's sniffing. <laughs> I suppose I should do that too. Yeah, I was just going to try to describe. It's a little bit, to me, it's a little bit, well, okay. It's a little bit like a molassesy smell. But here's the other thing. So this is why I paused for a hot second because um, for, for a lot of um, Asian cultures, we have this like Asian, it's like grass jelly or herbal jelly. And if anyone understands what that means, that kind of what it's, is what it smells like to me is like that uh, herbal jelly that you might get in boba. You actually just bite in a tub and slice it up and put some like sh- like sugar water in it or something hmm. and eat it. But um, anyway, so it's basically kind of like a sugary, herby-ish smell, molassesy to it. Okay, I'll just shut up. I guess I do smell the molasses. It does not taste like it smells. That is true. And it tastes much better with the 7-Up mixed I, in. <laughs> I'm glad that I um, that this was not a stronger li- liquor because I just I think took... it's a liqueur because it's okay. been distilled True. further. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's correct. I'm glad it's not as strong as, as, I, as other alcohols yeah. because I just took a massive gulp of it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do it all in one? Oh, no, 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 I didn't do it like a shot, but I, I think I just got overzealous with that whole thing. I mean, it happens. Uh, what do you taste in it? Okay, let me try again. It's going down smoother with each sip. Oh, just kidding. The back end is fiery. It's a bitey, yeah. That's fiery. We were thinking about mixing this with bourbon later, and now I'm not so sure about that. I would think gin, but this is based in gin, that's it's what you're saying. So, yeah, I would see adding more gin would just bring, would level that out. But I don't know. Or we could make French 75s. Ooh, I love with those. With this oh. and some gin. Okay. Okay. I don't, do you have champagne? I sure do. Okay. <laughs> so... After the podcast, we'll get really wasted. But yes, for, now, for you, we'll stay mostly not wasted. I don't know. It's actually more of like a watery taste. It doesn't have as Until much it flavor. Bites you. Right? Yeah. Right. It's an interesting little liqueur. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'll keep thinking. And it's it's actually not as expensive as some that I've featured on here more recently, which is nice because some of those have been quite pricey. Mm-hmm. So it's a liqueur that you can add pretty easily. I think it was actually only like $25 oh, for the bottle. Okay. Yeah, I was surprised. I wasn't... Similar to Aperol then. Yeah, and then it's a 25% alcohol content, which isn't that bad for a liquor or liqueur. Mm-hmm. So I think actually that's all I had to say about that. <laughs> Are you still like... I just felt like flavor? a frog for a second. Yeah, I was just... Yeah, basically I was trying to still figure out like, what is that taste? I don't know. Anyway. Had you ever had one of these before? Yes. I actually hear... Okay, small story. So when I was at USC, I had a friend who was Australian, but studied in uh, Manchester. And he kind of was like, oh, PIMS is coveted. No one in the state sells PIMS. Because I don't know, maybe they didn't at that time? Like, it's possible. Yeah. And so he, like, he flew over from Manchester to Los Angeles with this bottle of PIMS. And it was sort of this, like absinthe thing like you know mm. this sort of um but it won't mess you up like absinthe well right but th- yeah and and so we he made pimps cup for us which was this is why i got seven up because that's how he made it was with 
like I think he even just put it like in a punch bowl and just put a whole bottle in and whole like couple bottles of other things. So it was kind of like a punch situation. Yeah, this actually now that you mentioned that, this would be really easy to make into a punch. Yeah. He might have added some more like lime. It was kind of a communal drink. I think he might have added maybe some sherbet. Oh, that's the right word. I always get sorbet and sherbet mixed up. Okay, so my first job was at Cold Stone Creamery, and we Ooh, called yum. it sorbet because maybe there's an actual difference, but the reason I got was because sherbet throws people off. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to say it. We just wanted to make people feel comfortable. Okay. So I, th- I think they're the same thing. Okay, so, you know, basically if you get one of those, like, lemon Minute Maid lemon, lemon lime frozen things... The hand gestures right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like they come in a can. Anyway, I don't know. He added some ice cream things in there that also made it sweet. That had some lemon lime stuff. Hmm. That's all you need to know. (laughs) But yeah, so it was was because of him that I actually was introduced to Pimp's Cup. And every now and then I would order it feeling like, oh, I'm getting Pimp's Cup. But it's like totally accessible now. Yeah, it was actually, I hadn't ever had one before Mm -hmm. or made one. But it used to be one of our, before I started working at the bar, the fancy speakeasy bar that we had downstairs, it was one of the like three specialty cocktails. It was that and like a sangria that apparently was just a beast to put together. (laughs) Oh, just the amount of ingredients. Yeah. 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 Which you don't want to do as a bartender, especially if it's busy. But in any case, I had never had one before today. Yay. And I'm glad you like it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So the reason that we decided to pair the Pim's Cup with Smetna is because in the first sentence in the book, The Joy of Mixology, was it's not too well known in the States. And that's kind of how Smetna is, even though, like, this is a really good drink, and Smetna has a lot of really good compositions. Mm -hmm. So let's get into Smetna. Yeah. I mean, so many people know about Dvorak. It's like, who's this other Czech composer? I don't know. Yeah. How do you even pronounce his name? Is it Smetana or is it Smetna? Actually, okay, so I listened to a couple podcasts. There is ABC Sharp has an episode that released on May 21st of this year. And then That Classical Podcast, their episode is from March 18th, 2018, and of course, Wikipedia. But on the ABC Sharp podcast, I couldn't quite pin the accent, but they kept calling him Smetana, but then when they said triangle instead of triangle, I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to keep saying Smetna. They're all a little wonky. <laughs> okay, so that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that classical podcast is based in Britain, so they're British. And I got a lot of my information from them. So, oh, I should mention, the two-minute personal history idea came from them doing a one minute composer bio got it and it's like the first time i listened to it i could not understand it because they have british accents and then they just go like all these words and i was like whoa (laughs) (laughs) overload uh so smetna was born march 2nd 1824 and died may 12th 1884 so he died at the age of 60 and he kind of sucked he wasn't great at school so his family sent him away to live with an aunt and uncle, but he ended up just hooking up with his cousin all the time. Mm-hmm. He was a cousin lover. Uh, Don't do that, people. <laughs> it's gross. It's called incest now. <laughs> it is called incest now. His wife became ill, and he just kind of like peaced out to Sweden and met a mistress. So he had a mistress while his wife was sick and dying. And then less than a year after she did pass away, he remarried. And I'm less upset about the 
less than a year Mm -hmm. after she died, he got remarried. Then I am about abandoning his sick wife and then cheating on her. Right. How low can you get? I mean, that's, that's John Edwards territory for sure. Yes. Not to get political. Sorry. (laughs) Just not the coolest dude. Yeah. And do you want to talk about the results of maybe sleeping around? Oh, um, oh, I see. Um, (laughs) well, okay. I guess this stops now. I was trying to time you to see how quickly that you could do it. Oh, (laughs) it's okay. I'm like, oh, I just, yeah, it's fine. Um, yeah, kids, uh, make sure you, uh, just be careful when you are, I don't know. What am I doing? This is not a PSA. He got syphilis people, so... <laughs> Which I actually didn't. I kind of forgot about um, the per, the main composer. I think about who had syphilis was Schubert, mm-hmm, but it was a thing, and it still is a thing. A lot of people in that time though died from syphilis, right? Because that was before penicillin. Must have been. I think penicillin is the thing that stops it. I think so too. Yeah, that Grey's Sister? Anatomy episode. <laughs> right, is how I With always George. remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> poor sweet George. Yeah, I know. But you were saying that you thought his syphilis contributed to his deafness, which I wasn't aware that he was going deaf. Yes. I Well, I knew. So when I studied this piece, that's when I found out that he did go deaf because of what we will talk about eventually. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I also didn't realize that maybe they were connected. And that was based on um, a program notes from the Los Angeles Philharmonic that said that. Um, or it, which maybe was, they were connected, even though he started going deaf when he wrote this piece in... Or he was deaf when he wrote this piece in 1876. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean they weren't connected. Yeah, it's just, who, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Smetna tried to write one opera per year, and people did not like them. There was, this was on that classical podcast, there was a critical review about once a year in the Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia, whatever it was called at the time. There's an atrocity. I can't. I can't even summarize it. But they hated his operas. They yeah, thought they were. They were like, awful. just stop already. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's well. And probably his most famous one is the Bartered Bride, which is like a huge orchestral excerpt. Shout out to like almost every string player. I've actually no, maybe I have done an excerpt. Well, certainly for cellists, that's a giant one. But even on that classical podcast, which I find it interesting, it's two singers that host that podcast. Mm -hmm. So they were talking about, if you want to hear The Bartered Bride, listen to Classical FM. They play it all the time. Mm -hmm. But the the woman host was talking about Smetna. And she mentioned, like, you can listen to The Bartered Bride if you want to. It's not a great opera, but it is an opera. (laughs) (laughs) It's more fun. Yeah. So I don't... She didn't seem... All that enthused about it either. Mm-hmm. Though he, Smetna was much more appreciated later in his life than he was at that time. Sure. There's another opera, Dalibor, D A L I B O R. Don't know. I, I don't, don't know really either. know Bartered Bride, to be honest. I don't, I don't either. But his other most famous work is Muff Lost, which is, it means from my homeland, or I think it might translate more literally to the fatherland, which I found interesting because most people call it the motherland sure but he was a very patriotic composer so he used a lot of elements from um 
from his country. There's so Mavlast is six symphonic sketches that are often now played as one giant piece, but they were actually premiered at six separate instances. I see. And there's one about a river. I'm blanking. Moldau. Moldau. It's just lovely. Yeah, it's a lovely piece of music. And the use of dynamics, man, that's homework time. Go listen to that piece. It's so beautiful. But he also wrote about a castle. Like one of the sketches is about a castle that you can actually still not now, but you can go tour it Mm -hmm. when COVID ends. Right. Right. (laughs) So there's six sketches that are about different parts of the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, whatever. Yeah. Whatever it was called in his time. <laughs> yeah, I know, because it's up. changed a lot, yeah. Yes. So his string quartet number one, From My Life in E Minor, was written in 1876. And as we mentioned earlier, it's written after he was already deaf. It's semi-autobiographical, hence the nickname. And fun fact, Dvorak was the violist for the premiere. Ta-da! Ta-da! And I didn't... You seem like you knew that already, Patty. But Oh, I'm not surprised. Um, I, I guess I wasn't either because you see Dvorak's American Quartet and Spentness from My Life on the same album mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. And fun fact, Patty also did an episode on my podcast uh, about the what American my String yeah. Quartet. <laughs> that is true. So you can put these episodes back to back and listen to both of those pieces back to back. On probably like 12 different albums. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't a super long string quartet. It, oh, I meant to do the math before. But the first movement is about seven minutes long. Second movement is about five and a half. Third movement is about eight minutes and 16 seconds. It, at least it wasn't this recording. I don't know why I wrote the time so specifically for that one. And then the fourth movement is around six minutes long. And Patty, that adds up to? Like around 27 to 28 minutes. Yeah, so for a string quartet, that's pretty standard. Yeah. Not epically long. Yeah. Would you like to share anything about your experience performing this piece? No. Or would you like this to... Was this, this is the second string quartet that I've ever learned. Oh, really? Yes. And um, it, so this, this, along with the Dvorak American Quartet, are usually kind of some of the first pieces that you are... I, wouldn't, I don't want to say like students, but... Um, yeah, I guess. this is not a student work. Well, right, and um, but it's it's accessible, I, I think, in certain ways. Um, but yes, Smetna is definitely trickier than it than it looks or it seems, right? And um, so, sorry to interrupt. Mm. I've never seriously studied this piece or played it. Mm. I've tried to sight read it a mm. few times. Mm-hmm. Disaster. Yeah, complete disaster because it is harder than it looks. Yes, and. The twists and turns in it are not what you always expect. Mm-hmm. And that's the, um, yeah. Anyway, so um, I was a freshman in undergrad, and I was thrown in this quartet with um, other freshmen who ended up... <laughs> it's funny, because the four of us ended up continuing our professional music careers, whereas most of the other... There's maybe a few other people in my in my class, but that also continued and are successful, but others ventured off in different paths, which is totally cool. It's like do your thing. But, um, <laughs> so my first, I never chose either of the, we, we played a Mendelssohn, uh, first semester and then Smetna second semester. <laughs> I, I think there's just little things about our coachings and our rehearsals that kind of bring back a lot of memories for me with that group. And I mean, they're all like my best friends 
to this day too. So, um, I, but on the way over here, I actually have the recording of our performance, which you, okay. Thank you. It's more comical now because of all the, like all the chamber music mistakes that we made, but we (laughs) thought it was so good at the time sort of thing. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I've heard that you should always be able to look back at yourself from a year ago and be like, uh-uh, not that person anymore. So, like, what would this be? Like, 10, 12 oh. years ago? Ooh, that would put a number on me. But Just putting a number on me, too. A while ago, yeah, for sure. Um, and, I mean, I was... I also just remember, like, when I was performing, just being really nervous. Because you're a baby, and you're, like, trying to prove yourself. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, any one step is out of tune. It's going to be the worst thing in the world. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not. You're fine. But... Yeah, so I, I guess that's kind of the... I, my, my coach was Peter Marsh, who was the violist of the... No, he was a violinist of the Lennox String Quartet. And um, maybe one of my favorite memories from him in one of those coachings was suddenly he was coaching us and then he stopped. And he kind of gave us this look and went, I smell waffles. <laughs> we were just like, what? <laughs> so yeah, anyway, thanks, Peter were Marsh. Were there waffles? No, <laughs> I wish they were. What a weird thing to say. Yes, it was weird. So I'll maybe sprinkle in some anecdotes from that time. Yes, please do. Have you played it professionally? No. Maybe we should make that happen. Okay. <laughs> Post-COVID. <laughs> so let's hear some of the music. Okay. The opening of the first movement was used in the 1992 film Sneakers at a concert that the characters attend in the movie. And I tried to look up a plot. Have you ever played Balderdash? It's a word game where you have like weird words, peculiar people, movies, weird laws. Oh, acronyms is the other one. And everyone's supposed to write what they think that thing is. And then you read the definitions. And Okay. The movie plots are amazing and hysterical. And I was hoping to get like a weird plot for this movie. But the plot on Wikipedia was like four paragraphs long and i was like i'm not reading that yeah no, no, no. <laughs> so anyway probably not relevant to what was going on in the film but i have absolutely no idea but let's hear what those characters heard when they went to a concert Yep, that's, yep, sorry. Oh, I also realized, so I brought some snacks again, but I totally messed up. Yes, thank you for the snacks. Oh, well, <laughs> Why I didn't did you mean... mess up? These are delicious. Do you remember the episode where I With brought... With all the chips? Yes. I, like, was sitting in my car and going, like, you know, after I bought I bought them, I was like, God, I just did it again. Like, I, I, I just like crunchy snacks or something. I don't know. But anyway. Crunchy snacks are good. So if, uh, forgive us, listeners, if you hear, like, a... <laughs> these are less crunchy than chips though oh. which is good so about that this that was a we've one. already had to re-record this part because a cat <laughs> messed yeah. it up and she just jumped straight over my laptop but she's so cute she is so cute 
So, <laughs> so yeah, it's like it's similar to Dvorak in a way that they both oh. have giant viola openings, and the doody doody is yeah, same. that's true. There's an oscillation, mm-hmm. but this one's in a minor key. That is true. Oh, isn't Dvorak? No, Dvorak is in F major. Yes, you took me up there and then you dropped me a little bit. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> I was thinking it was E major and E minor. No. Unfortunately. That would have been awesome. He that took it up a half awesome. step. As in Dvorak took it up a half step. Was Dvorak written after? We should remember. <laughs> I don't remember. I think so. Just for you listeners out there, I don't remember anything just, that happens on my podcast. I'm just going to take a quick Google search while you do some more spieling. Some more something else. So, actually, why don't we listen to the second theme from the first movement? Sure, that's a good segue. (laughs) While you look that up. so nice and then it just takes like a hard left at the end Mm -hmm. gets real dramatic yep can't be too happy too long no not in any aware (laughs) (laughs) so so during that we confirmed that Dvorak's American Quartet was written in 19 excuse me was written in 1893 so and I was thinking you know it made makes sense that he would have written that later then because if he was at the premiere of Smetna's, or he was performing from my life uh, at Smetna's premiere. Which means he was also there. Correct. He was not in America yet. Unless he flew back, or there's no, there were no planes back then. <laughs> this is going well. Yeah, I know. Oh, man. But, I mean, not to say that the American Quartet was his first string quartet, just right. before comparing these particular string quartets against one another. But they are similar, so he... They're he, similar. Yeah. Dvorak, I would like to postulate, probably drew inspiration from this piece. Yeah. It's great. So, like, why wouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And he was there. And he played it. I mean, you know, just... Yeah. So, the second movement... Oh, okay. ...is a scherzo. This is a lot like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, where the scherzo is the second movement and not the third. Okay. Following. Or like Mahler 6, where you could do a swappy swap. A swappy swap, yes. <laughs> yes. This scherzo is actually based on a polka, which is the national dance of the Czech. The Czechs. The Czechs. People. The Czech people. Before we listen, on that classical podcast, they mentioned that Smetna wrote a lot of dances, and they kept saying in their cute little British accents, he wrote the bangers of the time, and then the other one would be like, it was great. Should I say what you were tell what how you were describing this opening to me? Yes, I don't remember. You don't remember, <laughs> Asia. It was like <laughs> I know. Yes, please do. No, actually, you know what? I maybe will save it. I don't want to have anyone be tainted with this image. I will. I'll say say it after. So 
that played and I instantly knew what you were going to say. I, for some reason, thought you were talking about the opening of the first movement. No. <laughs> no. I'm giving Asia a particular glare of, um, okay. Because now it's forever ruined for me. I'm sorry. Is she said, oh, yeah, the first, the second movement sounds like a fart when it begins. And I'm like, excuse me, that's the cello playing an F. You're saying that we sound like farts? <laughs> Just like, in that moment. Uh-huh. So, there you go. If you thought they sounded like a fart, email uh, Asia at <laughs> twincitysymphony.gmail.com. At at okay. yes. Or comment on Facebook and Instagram. Right. But for payback. Okay. Haven't recorded this yet, but it will release the week before this. Mm-hmm. There's a moment in the Mozart Violin Concerto Number no. 5 where the violin sounds like it's farting. So <laughs> I'm not sure whether or not I'm going to include that in the episode yet. Sure, I see, I see. But... But it's not just the cellists. Okay. Well, then, okay. All right. That's, uh... <laughs> I mean, it's like, if I ever were to play this piece again in Asia, do you understand that now I have this, like, pressure? Not to use a fart joke in there, but like, I have this, you know, I have this, like, now pressure to not make it sound like a fart. And every time I'm going to make it, I'm, I'm going to play an F, it's going to sound like a fart to me. I'm like, God, it's not good enough. <laughs> Asia! <laughs> Sorry, I ruined the cello for you. Yeah, exactly. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just totally... T- jokes Jokes here. <laughs> so that's a one of the bangers of the time. <sighs> right. A Czech polka. And then we get to the trio section, which mm-hmm. if you've listened to other episodes of the podcast, Scherzo has a beginning section, and it's interrelated key to the trio, and then the trio is completely different material, and then you return back to the top of it, the Scherzo. So... I also have some imagery for the trio. I should share that beforehand. You have something to say. I have a couple things. I was just going to briefly say, basically, the ABA or ABA prime sort of structure is generally called either a binary or ternary form, depending on how you see it. So you can, for theory buffs out there, that is one way of describing a a movement like this is when when it has that kind of structure. That was, that was point number one. Point number two. Well, it was an anecdotal story for the story that you're going to say later, so maybe I can save it. So I see this as, like, pirates or sailors drunk on the sea. Celine Dion can't get past the near far part of the near far. That's what the violinists are doing. They're just like near. Oh, I see. Far. <laughs> well, how does it? Let's start what? over. Near <laughs> far. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but I sure I get that. Okay, I guess because as you know, as the cellist, I'm like So it's fun. You're the waves. Not the fart this time. <laughs> okay, great. I'm graded. <laughs> my little story was that in coaching, my coach said basically, like, this is where you're drunk. And of course, we're freshmen. We're what? Like 17, 18? Oh, so 18 you're to scandalized 19. to hear an adult tell you that. No. Oh, no. I was when 
that would happen. Well, okay, hold on. So, 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 right. So he was like, oh yeah, this is kind of the drunk section of, of this movement. And at that time, I didn't start drinking until it was basically legal. It was like 21 for Americans here. But the rest of my quartet did. And they're like, oh, great. We can do some research. Like, how do we play? And you know what's funny? Like, when I listen back to this recording of us, I am listening back and I'm like, wow, that's actually, like, I'm playing it really straight. Like, and very, like, proper. And I'm like, wow, that wasn't right. I should have been drunk. <laughs> I should have known what it was like to be drunk. So... Please drink responsibly and don't drink before the legal age of whatever country you're listening from. But yeah. I was in a quartet in undergrad where actually I feel really bad for the violist because he was in grad school and playing with three undergrads. So I wonder how he felt about that. But he mentioned once that we should all like get together and like have some wine or beers or whatever. And he said something I will never forget. A quartet that drinks well together plays well together. I feel like there's a lot of, that's like a very open-ended thing to, it's like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Like, I feel like they're, I mean, I think that's, that's fair, totally, but right, I could see like, oh, there's a lot of potential. For disaster or to good. Be, to be discovered, at least, yeah. To be discovered, that's a better way to say it. <laughs> so that's the second movement. Patty has been on the podcast, I don't even know how many times at this point. I think this is number four. That's kind of what I was thinking, too. Yeah. But there have been so many times that I've been like, we're highlighting all these violin things. And then Patty here is a cellist, like, cool, more violin stuff. (laughs) Because that's like the life of a cellist. But there's a beautiful cello solo at the beginning of the third movement. So I thought we would feature that in honor of Patty. Yay. to me is kind of challenging because not necessarily technically um but trying to get sounds technically challenging sorry to interrupt oh no no i mean okay i mean there's a there's a little ditties in there but like you know it's not like you're really exposed i mean okay you are exposed because you're only playing there, but it's not like something that you're shifting really high for. It's nothing that's oh, I see. string crossing kind of complicated yeah, or anything okay. like that. Like I would say uh, the very end of Beethoven's 132 solo with the violin. Oh man, that's like, I feel like really on pins and needles playing that solo. Mm-hmm. But this is, it's, it's more manageable. But I think what's challenging about it is getting the right character, the entire uh, solo. Because it, it transforms as it goes. And that's where, you know, because you start in this sort of solilo- soliloquy and then you get to this really deep kind of turmoil at the at the bottom of the register of the instrument. Yeah. And um, Oh, and that open C string. Yeah, I mean, ah! we got there and we were just like, oh, there's nothing like it. Yeah, it's fun. I know. It's It's just kind of, it's a lot of emotions that you have to pack into one like, I don't know how many measures this is, but it's not very long of a solo. Mm-mm. And then you have to not only just go through all that series of emotion, you also then are responsible to transition into the main theme of the entire movement, which is 
beautiful and luscious. And I think you were saying that it was uh, sort of a love letter to his wife who was sick and dying when he was having an affair with someone else. Yes. So on that classical podcast, they mentioned that maybe this was actually written for his cousin. Right. Who was his first love. Which is gross. I don't know what word I just said. <laughs> I think it was just a sound. <laughs> Please spell it out phonetically. No, just <laughs> anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's uh, you know, love is love. I guess not when it's incest. That's just gross. <laughs> I guess you're right. I don't know. I'm trying. But anyway, would you like to hear the love letter that we actually really hope yes. was for his? Sick and dying wife who he was cheating on. Yes. Did you use the violin version or the, the cello? cello? Oh, you did? Oh, thanks, Asia. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so the cello version of this comes later in the movement. It's not immediately after the cello opening. I think we pass it, the cellist passes it off to the first violinist. But because Asia's nice, she's playing the cello version. Thank you. Resolve it. The resolution goes into the next phrase. Well, like, I can't. know, but I was like, ah. okay. <laughs> I know. Actually, Patty's words were, "That's where you ended the clip." <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go listen to the whole thing. Yeah, no, seriously, just do that instead. Yeah. yeah. It is, and it was already a really long clip. This is true. This is true. In all fairness, who am I to complain? You played the cello version, so I did. <laughs> But I didn't let it resolve. Cliffhanger! Yeah. <laughs> so that's the third movement. It's beautiful. And again, we hope it's about his wife, not his cousin. So we move on to the fourth movement. Can I just... Well, I don't want to ruin listeners' listenings. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> but, you know, in re-listening to this movement, I after years, I was like... It, to me, it's like suddenly after this really beautiful third movement of you know just pouring out your heart it's something like we're happy now let's just be happy it is weird <laughs> it is a bit kind of out of the blue of like just in your face like energy and excitement and i don't know it's i mean i guess it just was a thing that i had to get over again i guess i don't i don't know That second part, I think that's a reflection back on the drunken part of the polka. Hmm. I hadn't made that connection before. I just liked it because it throws it throws the rhythm off kilter. Mm-hmm. 
But I included, I made that clip a little longer than I usually would too, because I just thought that part was so fun. Yeah, but you, you see how, like, it's like very, very, very peppy. If you're sleeping in the hall, you're going to wake up to this, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. So. Oh, the concert hall. My mind immediately went to, like, a hallway for, oh, who knows why. Well, no, because it's we've been, been a while since we've, we've been, been in, yeah. yeah. Coronavirus <laughs> stages of life. Yeah. Yes. What I wrote in my notes for that part was clearly he wrote the bangers of the time. I mean, that was like, you can like pump your fists to that if yeah. you're a dork like me. Or me. We were both doing that at the same time. So. We were. And then I did a weird dance. Maybe this is why we're friends. It's exactly why we're friends. <laughs> Shall we hear maybe the most paralleled part of the music to his... If you can hear that scratching, that's my other cat, Cindy Lou, scratching on the cat tree. This next part, there's a lot packed into it. So at the beginning, I'm just going to say that he was... Smetna developed tinnitus, and that was the beginning of his hearing loss. And there's a harmonic E, which there's a whole bunch of cool physics and mathematics behind this. But if you touch the string in the right place without pressing down, you can actually change the pitch. It's cutting the the string in half, basically, for this particular yes. harmonic for you, yes. right? So if you take the end points of the, of the string on an instrument, cut in half, that's a node. Yes, and harmonics are super cool, super fun, and Smetna wrote it in here to... Get, have the listeners sort of understand maybe the tinnitus. Represent, yeah. represent the tinnitus, mm-hmm. yes. But what... It said on Wikipedia is even though the note is an E, it was actually an A flat major chord that he was hearing. Whoa. Here it is. Welcome to Tinnitus, people. musicologist or scholar of Smetna, but I was thinking about how the first melody, the first theme of the first movement, that comes back um, at this point in the entire quartet, which is frankly the end of the quartet, beginning to be the end of the final. Even though it sounds like the beginning of the beginning. (laughs) Thank you. So I was thinking kind of how maybe he was introducing himself in thematically in music as that theme and that maybe now he's presenting this theme again at the end as sort of saying, here I am at the end of my life with hearing loss and syphilis. (laughs) The syph. Yeah, maybe. I I hadn't thought about it that way. I don't know. Me neither until now. If you don't know what tinnitus is, you heard it, the... There we go. I got there. <laughs> it doesn't scoop up like that. It's just that ringing it's that pitch ping in noise. your ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we all experience that at, at stages of our life. Like we lose hearing as we age. Yes. And I mean, there's certainly times where I get like, ah, oh, that's a B. Oh God, there goes that. Oh right, because yeah, I know. You're I one of those that has perfect pitch. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's one of those things where some people have it very chronically, mm-hmm. or just kind of devours their center of hearing. Mm-hmm. 
So that sucks. Sorry, people who have that. Yeah, that would be very frustrating. Yeah. As the piece is coming to a close, the other thing, this was a jam-packed excerpt because we returned to the beginning. For the rest of it, you get to discover it on your own. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing piece of music. Super yeah. fun to listen to. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say about this piece or Smetna? Well, you know, I thought I had more anecdotes, but I guess not. I think we all kind of covered it because, you know, yeah. No. <laughs> all right. Well, then maybe I should say that less, more kindly. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. I'm good with blunt. <laughs> no. <laughs> Never. <laughs> okay. Dramatic. So before I ask you your final question, would you like to plug your social media accounts? You can follow Hayden at... This is just so scripted now. You can follow Hayden behind the music stand at Hayden Music Stand. And you can also email us at HaydenMusicStand at gmail.com. And that's about it. At Hayden Music Stand, you're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Correct. If you would like to follow Poor Me a Mozart, it's at Poor Me a Mozart on Facebook and Instagram. You can share the podcast with a friend. If you tuned in for just this episode, you can tune into other episodes, listen to stuff about Mozart, Beethoven, let's Beethoven. Yas. Yas. <laughs> if you would like to support the podcast with some dollars, you can go to patreon.com slash pour me a Mozart and become a Patreon member for $3 a month. You can also rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Spotify. I don't I also don't understand Google Play. Thank you to my Google Play listeners. <laughs> Thank you to all of my listeners worldwide. That's such a cool thing to say that I, you know, starting this podcast never thought would be a thing, but here we are. And this is about an anniversary for you, right? I don't know exactly what date you started, but... Uh, Halloween, because oh. episode one was Symphony Fantastique. Oh. And I was like, I need this to come out on okay. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it actually, okay. It's not quite not an anniversary. Quite. I, I, it might be about the anniversary of when I recorded the first episode, though. Ah, uh, okay. That's what I was thinking. Because I was in a, a alignment with when you injured your finger. <laughs> yes, it was. That's why I was like trying to... I thought it was this is summer. Okay. I'm coming up on the anniversary of my injury. Yee. Woot. <laughs> <laughs> so, your final question. Okay. What have you found as a benefit to online teaching? So, I actually... I mean, among a lot of other kind of negatives, like, of course, we want to be teaching in person. There's a whole personal relationship that you cultivate with your student. And there's there's certain things you can demonstrate in 3D way better than in a 2D format with Zoom, although True thank down. you, Zoom. But um, actually, what I've really benefited from is being able to see myself. So, you know, you can go between gallery view and you can go to speaker view. So most of the time when I'm teaching, I I have it on speaker view so I can see closer my student. But if I need to figure out how I'm doing something, I can switch it back to gallery view and look at myself do it and then have that kind of visual memory of how the student was doing it incorrectly that makes total sense yeah it's like having a mirror basically and i'm not i'm not always in a room that has a mirror so maybe other people find like this is not really useful but for me it's really i kind of am like okay wait a second let me i just need to analyze myself for a second and i click and i like look at how i'm doing moving my shoulder how i'm shift you know moving my left hand or whatever and i say oh i know exactly what this is what you're doing and this is what i'm doing and then they can see the difference and, and alter it. Interesting. And, you know, I was thinking even with a mirror in your room, you play the cello, so you'd have to be very, like, you'd have to get up yeah, and that's, move. Yeah, that and... is very true, right? As cellists, we, we have mobility issues. <laughs> so, yeah, so I suppose for me, that's even more, of, unless if we had, like, 
um, two mirrors uh, across the... Yeah, that's just... Basically, it, it has been very useful for me to at least try to put into words what I'm doing so that my students can then understand what I'm trying to teach them. Yeah, I love that. Yay. That's a great observation. And then you can just end the end the lesson. Because that's the... Okay, I, 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 I only say that because honestly, when I teach in person, I have a really hard time looking at the clock because I don't really like teaching looking at the clock. Mm-hmm. So I oftentimes go over time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, same. Yeah, Teaching I online like by a lot though. Sometimes it's like time. an hour. Oh, Maddie. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. That's why I'm saying like, this is really good for me specifically because yes. I can just, I can see the time and I can just go, big. we're done. <laughs> I mean, we say bye. It's not like yeah. I just shut down. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's helped me stay more punctual too. Yes. Cheers to making online teaching work. Cheers to having you on the podcast Thanks, again. Asia. Cheers to Smetna and Pimp's Cup. Yes. Yes. Cheers. <laughs>